Good morning. Pray with me as we prepare to look into God's Word together. Dear Father, as we come to the final passage of this marvelous book, we ask you once again to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have for us as your beloved children. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This morning, we wrap up our series in the book of Jeremiah. My title for this entire series has been The Book of Jeremiah, A Covenant Broken, A Covenant Unbreakable. If you've been with us as we've journeyed through this amazing book, then you probably understand uh, by now how that title fits the book. Most of what we've seen in this book is God's repeated and forceful indictments against his own people, Israel and Judah, because of their persistent violations of the covenant that he established with them through Moses nearly a thousand years earlier. That covenant, known as the law of Moses, demanded the people's faithfulness and loyalty to the one true God who had created them and had redeemed them out of harsh bondage in Egypt to be a people for his own possession. The covenant called them to keep his commandments from hearts filled with gratitude and love because of who God is, what he had done for them, and what he promised to do for them in the future. God promised his, his, to his people miraculous blessings of provision, protection, and abundance from his hand if they were careful to listen to him and to treasure his life-giving word. But that same covenant had come with vivid and terrifying prophecies of severe judgments that would come upon God's own people from the hand of God if they did not listen to him and, and humbly, gratefully walk in his ways. And, of course, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. Jeremiah chapter 2 told us that the only time in their whole history when the Israelites did listen to God and follow after him with humble dependence, at least at some level, was during the 40 years that he had led them through the desert wilderness of Sinai before bringing them into the land that he had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But from the time that they came into that place of abundance, their hearts had turned away from their provider and protector. They had become arrogant, prideful, self-dependent instead of dependent on God. They had replaced the God of Abraham with the gods of the pagan nations that surrounded them and of the nations that God was judging through them. In chapter 10, God mocked their pathetic imitation gods, pointing out that they had to be propped up because they could not stand. They had to be carried around because they could not walk. They couldn't tell the end from the beginning as Yahweh continually did through his faithful prophets. In fact, their gods couldn't speak at all. 
But the people persisted in what God called their discipline of delusion, serving the work of their own hands while saying to their true deliverer, as recorded in Jeremiah 2 verse 20, I will not serve you. In that same chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 2, God summed up the rebellious heart of Israel and Judah, saying, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to dig out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Ironically, at, at various points in this book, the kings and officials of Judah had repeatedly cast God's ambassador, Jeremiah, into actual waterless cisterns that exactly fit the metaphor that God used to describe their foolish efforts to do for themselves what only God can do. God kept rescuing Jeremiah from those physical pits, while the people of Judah kept making their own spiritual pits deeper and drier. Because their hearts and actions had become so calloused against their God and had remained so for so long, God declared harsh judgments that he was about to bring upon them by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, whom he had raised up to be his hammer against Judah and against all the nations. And every word of those prophecies of judgment came true in every detail, including the terrible and prolonged siege by Nebuchadnezzar of the great fortified city of Jerusalem in which the temple of Yahweh resided, a siege that had been foretold to Israel and Judah in detail nearly a thousand years before it happened, way back in the books of Moses. As the book of Jeremiah ends, the city and the temple have indeed fallen. The last king of Judah in the line of David has been blinded and carried away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. The small remnant of survivors in Judah have fled to Egypt in disobedience to God because they feared Babylon and Egypt more than they feared Yahweh. And God, by this point, has sent Nebuchadnezzar's army to judge both Egypt and that remnant of Judahites who sought refuge in Egypt instead of in him. In the final chapters of the book, God also announced harsh judgments against the many nations that surrounded Judah, including Egypt and including Babylon, the nation that he had used as his hammer of judgment. In every case, God's stated reason for those judgments against the nations was the pride that drives men and women to close their ears and their hearts to the one true God and to listen instead to their own deceitful and desperately sick hearts. Judgment is the theme that fills most of the pages of the book of Jeremiah. But God made it clear over and over that the purpose of 
his terrifying judgments against Israel and Judah was not to destroy them, but to correct them, to turn their hearts back to him so that he might do good for them in the end. And it is, it is that promise of a new covenant, an unbreakable covenant, that shines into the gloom of this book as a living hope for the wayward people, the people that God had declared to make his inheritance forever. It is the promises of that new covenant which can never be broken because that covenant is not a contract between God and his people. That covenant, that new covenant, is an undeserved gift from God to his people. It's an inviolable, irreversible promise that God made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah to turn their hearts to him so that they will never turn away from him again. Even though the restoration passages in Jeremiah get a lot less verbal real estate than the judgment passages, it is those restoration passages that tell us the end of the story when it comes to Israel's and Judah's future. In chapters 30 to 33, which is known by many as Jeremiah's book of hope or book of consolation, we saw the new covenant right here in the Old Testament. The promise of rebellious hearts made new by God's doing, not by man's. The promise of a people that, that is made to delight in the ways and the laws of the one true God. A people that personally and intimately knows God. From the least of them to the greatest of them, a people that has been forgiven and cleansed of their sin. A people firmly planted in the land that God promised to their forefathers, a land where he will be their God and they will be his people and he will dwell in their midst forever. And at the very center of those new covenant promises of redemption, restoration, and renewal is a person. The person that God in chapter 33 of Jeremiah calls the righteous branch of David. The same righteous branch whose coming was announced through the prophet Isaiah and, and Zechariah, the long-promised Messiah of God, the King of kings, who will turn the hearts of God's people back to himself and will reign over the whole earth in perfect righteousness and justice on the throne of David. When all is said and done, this, this amazing book, just like every book of the Bible, ends up being about him, about Jesus. The book of Jeremiah gives us a, a child's view into the heart of our Heavenly Father. And one of the most foundational things that we learned about God's heart in this book is what it is that our God does with all his heart and with all his soul. 
In his commission to Jeremiah in the first chapter, when Jeremiah was still a youth, probably a teenager, God said to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's task was to proclaim those intentions of God. God would be the one who would do all of those things. Pluck up and break down, destroy and overthrow, build and plant. At the end of chapter 32, we learned that it is the last of those works, building and planting, that God does with all his heart and all his soul. Listen one more time to Jeremiah 32, verses 36 through 42. This is the living God bearing his own heart to his people, his treasured inheritance. Verse 36, Now therefore thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says Yahweh, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. That passage is just marvelous. Do you want to know what our God does with all his heart and with all his soul? Then hear him when he tells you, beloved. He redeems and He restores. He builds and He plants. He pours out grace upon grace toward people who deserve only judgment from His hand. That's the heart of God. It's no wonder then that in the very last chapter of Jeremiah, after re reminding Judah of the culminating judgment of God against his own people in the Old Testament, which was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple of Yahweh. God now ends this book with a real-life story of renewal and restoration, a renewal that points directly to Jesus, the one in whom every promise of renewal in the Bible finds its perfect fulfillment. The very last paragraph of the book of Jeremiah 
points us one more time to God's gracious intention to heal the incurable wound of his people. It's the story of a discarded king of Judah named Jeconiah, a man judged and set aside by God who at the end of his earthly life is shown mercy and grace by the God whom he had spurned. Here's that last paragraph of the book of Jeremiah, starting in chapter 2, verse 31. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th of the month, that Evel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Then he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and, and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. The same man is variously called Jehoiakim, Coniah, and Jeconiah in this book. I'm going to use the name Jeconiah for the rest of this message because it's a lot easier for me to say than Jehoiakim. <laughs> Jeconiah was the grandson of King Josiah, who was the last of the really good kings of Judah. Josiah was, not Jeconiah. Jeconiah ruled as king of Judah for only three months. Because his heart was rebellious against Yahweh, God made this pronouncement about him in Jeremiah chapter, two, thir, uh, sorry, chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30. Listen to this. And, and I'm choosing a few excerpts here, not the entire passage. As I live, declares Yahweh, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off, and I will give you over into the hands of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Verse 28. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Verse 30, thus says Yahweh, write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. In that passage, in Jeremiah 22, God explicitly removes Jeconiah from the kingly line of David's descendants that would culminate in the king of kings, Jesus of Nazareth, the long-promised Messiah. But now fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, which begins with the genealogy of Jesus. 
verse 1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice that the very first connection that that genealogy makes between Jesus and those who preceded him is the connection between Jesus and David. The second is the connection between Jesus and Abraham. Then, after going backward from Jesus to David and then to Abraham, Matthew traces the line in detail from Abraham to Jesus. About two-thirds of the way through that genealogy, we read these words. Josiah, this is verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. The next verse says, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Then the genealogy proceeds from Zerubbabel to Jacob. And the last verse of the genealogy says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Finally, verse 17 of Matthew 1 gives a recap of three major sections of the genealogy, each of which includes 14 generations. Verse 17 says, So the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now I know, of course, that the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 differs from this one in Matthew chapter 1. The two genealogies match up very nicely from Abraham to David. But Matthew's genealogy traces the line then from David to Jesus, starting with Solomon. Luke's traces the line from David to Jesus, starting with Nathan, Solomon's brother. Now, some commentators conclude that Matthew is tracing the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, while Luke is tracing the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, but simply doesn't mention Mary because that would be awkward for a, for a genealogy of that age to mention the woman rather than the man. But the simple fact is that both genealogies finish out by saying that Jesus was the son of Joseph, and that's how genealogies were always reckoned in that era, through the father, even if it was an adoptive father. I believe the best explanation for the difference between the two genealogies is that Joseph's biological father died when he was young. And a relative, perhaps a half-brother of his father, adopted him and raised him. Hence, two lines of descent, both of which trace back to David and end in Jesus through Joseph. Now, I'm, not, I'm certainly not alone in that understanding. You can take it or leave it. It's not inspired. <laughs> However you resolve the difference between the two genealogies, there are a few things I want to make sure you notice about Matthew's 
genealogy. The first is that Matthew's gospel is widely known as the gospel of the kingdom. The word kingdom shows up more often in Matthew than in any other book of the Bible. Matthew devotes more space to the kingdom parables of Jesus than any other gospel writer. Matthew includes more references to Jesus as king than any other gospel writer. Secondly, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus has as its clear and emphatic goal to prove that Jesus was the long-promised king in the line of David, whom the prophets declared would reign on David's throne in perfect justice and righteousness forever. That's why Matthew's genealogy and the entire gospel of Matthew begin with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus, Messiah, son of David. The third thing I want you to see is that Matthew's genealogy traces the lineage of Jesus, the preeminent son of David, through Solomon who succeeded David on the throne of Israel. Solomon's brother, Nathan, was never king. It was Solomon, son of David, through whom God fulfilled in the short term his promise of a son of David who would build a house for Yahweh's name. Now, the king who fulfills that promise perfectly and forever is the last king in the line of David, and and that king is Jesus. He is and always will be the perfect tabernacle, the dwelling place of God among men. Now, why is all that important? And what does it have to do with the last paragraph of the book of Jeremiah? Well, it's important because Matthew's genealogy of Jesus very prominently includes Jeconiah, in the line of promise that leads straight from David to Jesus. Jeconiah, the very same king of Judah whom God declared in Jeremiah 22 to be excluded from that very line. And Matthew is very intentional about drawing our attention to the presence of Jeconiah in this genealogy that leads from David to Jesus. He meticulously divides his genealogy in the three sections, Abraham to David, David to the deportation of Babylon, and the deportation of Babylon into Babylon to to Jesus. And get this, guys. The two men who serve as the hinges that link those three sections of the genealogy, those two men are David and Jeconiah. Jeconiah is not incidental to the kingly genealogy of Jesus. He's critical to that genealogy. Okay, so what? (laughs) Here's what. In Jeremiah 22, God said even if Jeconiah was a signet ring on God's own right hand, he would pull him off and remove him from the line of promise that would ultimately lead all the way from King David to King Jesus. But a couple of generations after Jeconiah, after the 70-year exile of Judah in Babylon had come to an end, 
God raised up a faithful man from among those exiles to return to Jerusalem and to act as governor over Judah and Jerusalem. That man was Zerubbabel. In chapter 1 of the, of the prophetic book of Haggai, we find this statement about Zerubbabel. Chapter 1, verse 12 of Haggai. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people showed fear toward Yahweh. And then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke by the commission of Yahweh to the people, saying, I am with you, declares Yahweh. God then prospered the work of Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild the temple of Yahweh in the city of Jerusalem. And in the book of Zechariah, we learn that Zerubbabel was the man who placed the capstone, the final stone on that temple when it was finished. That's Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. Now, listen carefully to the last four verses of the book of Haggai. Listen for what God says about his signet ring. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Then the word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Yahweh, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Do you see what happened there? Do you know how many times in the whole Bible God refers to his own signet ring? Just three times. Three times. The first is in Jeremiah 22 when God says that he pulled Jeconiah off as his signet ring. The second time is right here in the last verse of Haggai where God says he put Zerubbabel on as his signet ring. Now go back to Matthew 1 for a moment. Remember there were two hinges or transitions that marked the movements from one major section of the genealogy of Jesus to the next. Here's the hinge between the second and third sections. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. The first time God speaks of his own signet ring, he's talking about Jeconiah. The second time he's talking about Zerubbabel. Both of those men are directly in the line that leads from David to Jesus. I believe the motif, the theme of the signet ring is intended to get our attention and to, to prove to us, to demonstrate to us 
that God is reversing a curse with a blessing. I believe what, that God has done something astonishingly beautiful here. In Jeconiah's own generation, God removed him from the line of promise because his heart was not devoted to God. But at the end of his life, God restored him to favor with the man who was then king of Babylon. And Jeconiah's prisoner's robes were replaced with royal robes, and he was set apart as the first among all of the subservient kings of Babylon. And Evelmeradoc, the king of Babylon, saw to it that, Je that Jeconiah was provided for exceedingly well for the remainder of his days. That gracious end to Jeconiah's life was a beacon of hope from the hand of God. And a couple of generations later, God raised up Jeconiah's grandson, Zerubbabel, a man whose heart was devoted to God. And through Zerubbabel, God restored Jeconiah to the line leading from King David to King Jesus. Now, if you're thinking, but Tom, that can't be right. Because the God of the Bible would never declare a judgment and then change his mind about that judgment. God would never say that Jeconiah was excluded from the promised line leading to Jesus if he intended to include Jeconiah in that line. If that's what you're thinking, let me assure you that I do not believe for a second and would never teach that anything that God says is untrue ever in any way. God does not change, period. In Numbers chapter 23, God used an evil man named Balaam to make this perfectly true declaration about God. Balaam said in Numbers 23 verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, I cannot revoke it. Balaam said when God declared his intention to bless Israel, there was no way that that blessing would ever be reversed. But what about God's intention to curse rather than to bless? Now stick with me. Does God ever change that declaration? If you say the answer is no, there are some other passages of Scripture that you're going to have a really hard time explaining. Because, beloved, over and over in the Bible, God turns curse into blessing. If we tried to list all of those instances, we'd be here a long time. That's why God could say to his wayward people, Judah, in Jeremiah chapter 30, your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I have done these things to you. Your wound is incurable. There is no one to plead your cause. There is no healing for your wound. There is no recovery for you. And then just two verses later, say to Judah, I will heal you of all your wounds.
The question here, beloved, is not, does God change? If that's the question, the answer is an emphatic, uncompromising, no. But that's not the question. The question here is, can God change his course of action from curse to blessing, from judgment to redemption, when he is determined to do exactly that from before the foundation of the world? And friends, if that's the question, your eternal destiny and mine depend on the fact that God's answer to that question is yes. If we say that can't happen because that would mean that God changes his mind the way you and I change our minds, the problem is that we're confusing our ways with God's ways. And that's always a mistake. The reason that you and I change our minds is precisely because we do not know the end from the beginning. We do not know how things are going to turn out. So when things go differently than we expected, we find ourselves having to change our minds and our course of action to accommodate a new state of affairs that we didn't expect. That doesn't happen to God. God does know the end from the beginning. That's one of the key assertions of Jeremiah chapter 10 and his argument against the idols. They don't know anything. God knows the end from the beginning. When it looks to you and me as if God has changed his mind, what's actually changed is God's course of action. God never changes his course of action in response to something that he didn't know or anticipate because there isn't anything that he doesn't know or anticipate. When God changes his course of action, <laughs> it's because he determined to do so before anything existed except him. We don't have any reference point for that scenario except God alone. So it's really hard for us to wrap our feeble little minds around it. But this happens over and over in his word. In Exodus chapter 32, after Moses came down from meeting with God on top of Mount Sinai, Moses found that the Israelites had made themselves an idol out of the very gold that God gave to them from the hands of the Egyptians as the spoils of a battle they didn't wage, God, a battle that God waged for them. They took that gold and they formed an idol and they called it the God who had led them out of Egypt. And here's what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. He said, Now then... <laughs> Let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. God declared his intention to destroy Israel and to start over with Moses to create a people for his own possession. But then Moses earnestly cried out to God in prayer, appealing to him, to him on the basis of his own character and his own promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Exodus 32, 14 says, So Yahweh changed his mind about the harm that he said he would do to his people. That's called an anthropomorphism. Don't worry about the word. It, it describes something that God does in terms of how that same action would be explained if a man had done it. It's kind of the best that human beings can do to describe 
something that God did. But God's ways are not man's ways, just as we've just been discussing. In Numbers chapter 14, God and Moses had very nearly the same conversation that they had there in Exodus 32. This time, Numbers 14, is right after the Israelites refused to enter the land of promise because they feared the giants who inhabited the land more than they feared God, who had very recently drowned the entire Egyptian army in the same body of water through which they had just crossed on dry ground. <laughs> Numbers 14, verses 11 and following. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. Sound familiar? Yet again, God says to Moses, I'm done with this people. I'm going to start over. But again, Moses appealed to God on the basis of God's own character and God's own promises. And in verse 20, God said to Moses, I have pardoned them according to your word. He pardoned them. He also punished them. Not for destruction, but for correction. And the punishment was 40 years of wilderness wanderings during which God fed them manna from heaven and gave them water from rocks and didn't let the clothes on their backs or the sandals on their feet wear out for 40 years and defeated their enemies on all sides. God was faithful to his people. He honored his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as he had always intended to do and always promised to do. We read passages like Exodus 32 and Numbers 14, and it looks to us as if Moses manipulated God into changing his mind about a declared judgment that would have wiped Israel off the face of the earth. But beloved... It was God who was manipulating Moses. It was God who was manipulating Moses in both of those passages. It was God setting Moses up so that Moses would have to reckon again with God's own covenant promises and count God's character and promises to be true. And then God would show Moses and his people that that is what never changes. God's character and God's unilateral promises never change. The heart of God loves to build and to plant, to redeem and to make new. And God wants us to know that. And God wants us to know that when He declares that He will bless on the basis not of what men have done, but on the basis of who he is. That promise will never be undone. Never. He wants us to know that about his heart. I said earlier that there are exactly three times in the Bible where God speaks of his own signet ring. The first time he was talking about Jeconiah, the signet ring that he removed. 
The second time he was talking about Zerubbabel, the signet ring that he put back on, thus reestablishing Jeconiah's membership in the line from David to Jesus. The third time that God speaks of his signet ring, he's talking about us. And that's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. Paul writes, In him, in Jesus, you also, not just us Jews, but you Gentiles, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, a down payment of our inheritance with the view, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The word sealed in that verse, in verse 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, is the Greek word that's used in the Old Testament. Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, every single time that word signet shows up. It's the same word. In Ephesians 1, God isn't talking about taking off his signet ring or putting it on. He's talking about using that ring to do what signet rings were purposed to do. A king's signet ring that bore his seal, his mark, was used to seal and to stamp a package or a document so that everyone handling that package would know that it came from the king. God's stamp on our hearts that marks us out as his and that secures us for the journey that ends with us living forever in his presence together with all his children that stamp is His indwelling Holy Spirit. The God who loves to save promises that every person who hears the message of truth, the good news of, of salvation, of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ alone, and who believes that message, everyone who, who hears it and believes it, receives that unbreakable seal of the living God. If your trust is in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has already signed, sealed, and will soon deliver you together with all the saints to that glorious place that Jesus went to prepare for us where he will be our God and we will be his people and he will dwell in our midst for all eternity. That is the unbreakable promise of the living God to his people. Holy Father, thank you for this incredible book and for all of your incomparable word. All of your revelation speaks to us of Jesus, the King of kings, the judge of all creation, 
and the Savior of all who trust in Him alone. Father, turn our hearts away from the dry cisterns that come from our own hands, that we may trust only in Jesus, the fountain of living waters, in whom is all that is life indeed. We ask this in His holy and precious name. Amen.